0: Welcome to the Imaginal Inspirations podcast with me, David Lorimer, where I talk to my guests about experiences, books, and people that have shaped their lives and work. Imaginal cells are responsible for the metamorphosis of the caterpillar into a butterfly, which is the Greek symbol for the soul. These cells are dormant in the caterpillar, but at a critical point of development, they create the new form and structure which becomes the butterfly, I understand this doesn't happen without some resistance on the part of the caterpillar cells. My guest today is Natasha Tassel-Matamua, who is an associate professor in the School of Psychology at Massey University in New Zealand and director of the Centre for Indigenous Psychologies. She's of indigenous Maori, Cook Islands, and European descent. Her research focuses primarily on near-death experiences and other exceptional experiences of consciousness and their implications for humanity, as well as the interface between such experiences, spirituality, and indigenous knowledges. And note indigenous knowledges in the plural, I'm sure she'll say more about that. So Natasha, um, tell us about a, a shaping moment involving your choice of work. You know, how did you get into psychology and near-death experiences?
1: Sure. Um, thanks for having me here, David. I think there's probably probably a, a culmination of things that that sort of shaped my path into psychology and into near-death experiences, but if I think about probably perhaps the key moment that shaped that path was probably when I had my own experience at around the age of 18, which uh, I now understand was a near-death-like experience. And that brought about some really rapid personal, I guess, changes, transformations, and how I saw the world and what I understood life to be about. So I had that experience and and at the time I was at university, I just started university and I was studying zoology. And I, I just had this urge after after this N D E like experience to not do that anymore. I just felt that wasn't my purpose in life. I instead felt like I really needed to experience the world, and I had this great thirst for understanding and knowledge. So I left university, much to the disappointment, I guess, of my family, and went overseas traveling. And it was while I was overseas, I actually went to the UK for a while and ended up working a, I'm not sure how i say, it, but a factory that, uh, for want of a better word, harvests chickens
0: <laughs> um, okay <laughs> and
1: and after my my nd like experience I'd become a, a vegetarian I just sort of couldn't really eat meat anymore so I, I had this uh, experience i i needed work so I worked at this chicken harvesting place and then eventually moved on to another factory doing night shifts and I thought when I was there look this is great to experience the world but when I go back to New Zealand, I'm going back to university and I, I'm going to study psychology. don't really know why psychology, but it's just sort of what I decided. So when I did come back to New Zealand, that's exactly what I did. studied psychology from undergraduate right through to a PhD. And then I went back overseas and, and eventually made it back to New Zealand to work at the university I'm currently at not in the area of NDEs. Um, I was working in another area and I got sent a letter one day by a person who had had an NDE and it was from there that was sort of the catalyst moment where I I felt like that was what I was meant to be doing.
0: And have you have you read a lot of accounts? Because Peter Fennec and I were my pioneers in, in near-death studies in the 1980s. And we did various radio shows and TV interviews, and we got hundreds of letters afterwards. And of course, reading through so many letters, you begin to realize that there are these common patterns in the experiences.
1: Yeah, yeah. I particularly when I, after I got this letter from, from this person, which was very random, you know, it was a completely random sort of thing. I thought this is, you know, what I need to do. And, and it. Just so happened that there was another colleague in the university who was also interested in NDEs. So we embarked on on a study exploring NDEs and the New Zealand population. And of course, the, you know, everyone was very intrigued. What are these, you know, crazy people doing? And and so there was a press release that was that was done. And as a consequence of that media attention, we were just both myself and my colleague were overwhelmed with letters, emails, phone calls from experiences. And I think I found that quite affirming for myself personally, having having had this experience earlier in my life and realizing that okay there there are these common things, people who appear to be functioning in a way that that is I don't want to say normal, but I guess that's that's sort of the word that might best in, encapsulate it. You know, they're having these experiences that there are commonalities, and these experiences are changing them in really profound and amazing ways. So, plenty of letters, plenty of of speaking to people on phones, and lots of interviews, and it's been transformational.
0: It's been amazing. Amazing. Does the the, the press react very positively to this on the whole? In New Zealand?
1: Um, yes and no. I think over time, you know, initially there was perhaps intrigue that <laughs> around the phenomenon. And why, why would an academic with a PhD study it? You know, that was sort of the perception that I got through the media. And, and mostly they haven't been too disparaging. On occasion, yeah, there are sort of still questions like, well, why on earth would you study this? And I guess the most common question that I I get from media people is, are they real?
0: Yes, that's a very <laughs> good real experience, which
1: is a very you know a very loaded and interesting. Well, question, I, think I think the
0: no, certainly my response to that would be they're hyper real for the people who have them. Um, yes. And this idea that, that the material world is the only form of reality is a rather short-sighted view that we've been conditioned into. Anyway, yes, let's move yeah. on to, did you have any influential mentors or teachers while you were studying? Is there anybody who springs to mind?
1: Um, there is one person that springs to mind. I mean, I, I must admit, I had, on reflection, I've I've had people who have been, incredibly supportive, which I've been really grateful for. But uh, certainly the the one person that I think has been a, a constant is my supervisor, the person who supervised my master's. And I subsequently asked that same person to, to supervise my PhD. And he's now a colleague of mine, but he's he's been influential, but maybe not in the way that that people often think he's been was very supportive but uh, through my masters but when it came to do my phd i initially wanted to study the relevance and importance of of spirituality and psychology um and he just at, at the time i mean this is nearly 20 years ago said don't be ridiculous. You'll never have a career. Um, <laughs> you'll never be employed at, at least not in at any credible university if you study spirituality. And I mean, I sort of thought, oh, y- you know, okay, an older person being around for a while. Maybe there's some substance to that. So I, I dropped the topic and did something else. So that may sound all very unsupportive, but on reflection, I realise that that's actually been a catalyst for me to now pursue studies, you know, NDE, consciousness, spirituality, all of these, I guess, existential questions, which I don't think we address or deal with that well in psychology. His comment and his saying, don't do it, um, I realise has has been really influential on my career.
0: Oh, interesting, because I I just got yesterday, yesterday evening, I was reading Jeff Krippel's new book called The Superhumanities, which has literally arrived yesterday because I've been anticipating it. And he he said something similar when he said that, um, that if you pursue, let's say, the study of parapsychology in university, in his university, you'll never get a job. So you can't be what he calls Superman and expect to be employed but what also sprang to mind when you said about spirituality is in the 1990s, so this is 30 years ago, 25, 30 years ago, we were debating in the Council of the Network whether to use explicitly the word spirituality, the S-word. But I think things have changed enormously. Would you, would you share that mm. view?
1: I would in my short time, I guess, since my PhD, you know, it's it's... 14 years now since I completed it, and I've seen a shift. I think there's been a lot more momentum, perhaps within the last five years, a deeper understanding that maybe this this S-word, spirituality, is important, particularly in psychology, particularly with regard to mental wellbeing. I I mean, and also in other disciplines, but certainly from the perspective of psychology in New Zealand, there's been a shift. And I think that's been helped quite a bit from the, I guess, the elevation of Indigenous perspectives Mm. in our country, which, you know, Indigenous perspectives, there is no existence without the spiritual. And as they've become elevated, I've seen a, a shift in recognition from a, if I can call it a Western psychological perspective of the value of spirituality. So yes, I think there's been a change. I think there's probably a lot more change that can happen.
0: That's very interesting because that that applies to you know, your culture, where it doesn't necessarily apply to the UK. But I wonder whether there's any similar movement in the UK. It's twenty years since the Spirituality and Psychiatry Group was formed in the Royal College of Psychiatrists, and it's now the largest special interest group with twenty percent of all psychiatrists belonging to it. Is there anything oh. similar going on yet in the in New Zealand?
1: I would say no, uh, you know, formally, but I'm part of a, a group, I guess, a special interest group of researchers and chaplains, and we've, we've sort of only been meeting perhaps over the past year or so, trying to create, I guess, momentum within our own sort of areas and disciplines um, regarding the importance of spirituality, particularly in relation to healthcare And it being a necessary part of a holistic health program i guess so i i I know that we've got that group there's about 20 to 25 of us which is pretty good for a small country like new zealand Mm. but certainly in in the discipline of psychology you know we have nothing that i'm aware of anyway associated with our professional body um nor in psychiatry
0: well, that's something to be thinking about because there is, in British psychological societies, the transpersonal section and a consciousness oh, and experiential psychology section, all of these were created by network members, I'm glad to say. Wow. And anyway, let's move on to books. What books have shaped your, your life and thinking? I always put this in the plural. I originally thought a book. but In fact, most people, it's many more than one book.
1: Oh, I imagine, I imagine, and I, I, it's certainly the same with me. I think a key book which I often reference is the Tibetan book of living and dying. Oh, yes. um, and that, that after I had my NDE-like experience, I had this really, um, this real desire to learn about Buddhism, which, you know, was on reflection very strange because I hadn't been brought up with an understanding of Buddhism but I can't remember how I think it was when I was in the UK I stumbled across this book and I thought oh well I'll get that and of course in it it mentions um, these experiences near-death experiences and it was within that book the pages of that book that I realized that what had happened to me was was something really special It wasn't crazy. It wasn't an alien abduction, which, you know, was one of the first things I thought because it was the only frame of reference I had for what I now understand to be an NDE. So that was a really, really key book for affirming what I had experienced. And I've still got that book now, many years later. Another really influential book has been. It's called. I think it's the Fingerprints of the Gods or Fingerprints of the Gods oh, yes. by Daniken. Graham Hancock.
0: Oh Hancock. And, sorry. Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I again, it was one of these things I stumbled across quite a while ago. And reading that, I I just felt perhaps amazement and wonder and this desire to understand the world, maybe from perspectives that weren't necessarily commonly endorsed so I found that really inspirational that particular book and I've read Dean Radin's books I found them really Mm. like wow actually there are people doing this amazing research that you know I feel we should be doing in New Zealand in psychology (laughs) so so I really enjoyed his books and in fact most the most recent inspiration um so there are many many books i read. but the most recent inspiration is a book that you you recommended david actually um entangled life
0: oh yes um, merlin Shoulders. Yes.
1: oh my gosh i mean it's just yeah i've i've loved the book and it's been really wonderful for looking at at things you know physical matter in a really different or biological matter in a really different way so so many books but certainly Tibetan book of living and dying was absolutely pivotal and then all of these others yeah (laughs)
0: well oddly enough I was at the launch in London of that book um, with Sogyal Rinpoche and Andrew Harvey and I remember Sogyal he got up on the table because there were a lot of people there and he said, thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedules to come and be at the launch of this book. And everybody roared the laughter, of course. But yes, a great book. And I knew Sogiel, wow. and I actually had dinner with Andrew um, just in, in Chartres in August. So there you go.
1: Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Um,
0: what about other, other key moments of insight in relation to the nature of consciousness? Does anything spring to mind um, as you've developed your research or your own experiences?
1: Um, I think there have been lots of different moments and different points of of reflecting and um, reaffirming or disregarding. But I think a more recent sort of, insight or understanding I came to and I don't think there was a particular point it's been maybe an accumulation of experience and mostly experience actually um as as perhaps the the realization you know because I I've having had this NDE like experience and then researching them I'm been wondering why aren't we doing why aren't people interested why isn't science interested in, in this phenomena? You know, it encourages us to question and to, to challenge these dominant assumptions. Why isn't science, you know, I'll just frame science as this big thing, but why isn't there an interest? And I think um, my experience as an Indigenous person and, and or female, and an NDE researcher, you know, they're all sort of marginal areas. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. and I I've realized that in the intersection of all this these marginal space spaces, that you know, knowledge is is intimately intertwined with power. And those with power or the the trend of the day determine what knowledge is accepted for common consumption. So that's been an insight for me in terms of Okay, it's not that NDEs are irrelevant or or indigenous perspectives, you know, which really speak to, I guess, the the nature of consciousness in ways that a reductionist materialist approach doesn't. It's not that they aren't important. It's just that, from my perspective, there are dominant discourses which are controlled or intimately intertwined with who has power and who's pushing those discourses. So that's been an insight for me, and I think it's it maybe may be sort of provided a bit of comfort that keep going, <laughs> keep going yes. with the research, persevere.
0: Well, it's clearly it's clearly your calling, and the you're quite right. I think this Foucault called um, knowledge power, and you know, the savoir pouvoir apparently is what the expression he used, which actually I read in Creiple last night, And the narrative control and the dominant narrative is is what you're supposed to accept as truth.
1: Um,
0: Mm. And that used to be the Catholic Church. Now it's science, broadly speaking, but informed by those assumptions, which I think are changing, but I think it's a long process. It may take a decade or two still before Mm. things look very different from what they are now.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: Yeah, Yes, anyway, what about... um, Going on to this question of how your understanding of consciousness influences the way you live your life. I'm sure it does.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I think there's um multiple points of influence, you know, I'd like to say that it influences everything I do, although I, I recognize that I'm I'm just not that enlightened. <laughs> Um, as well, but but I think perhaps uh, the biggest influence is in terms of how I I maybe parent my children, recognizing the importance of being present with them and the importance of spiritual influences maybe in their life. And and by spiritual influences, I sort of think about a more universal conscious consciousness. Also, understanding you know that that. The person they are the character they are perhaps has been shaped by a previous life you know which speaks to this idea that consciousness exists beyond the physical and being accepting of that or at least recognizing that on some level there are these little beings that I've had the privilege of bringing into this world and in this life but they they have other things that come with them, so that's a big influence. But the way I interact with my gardens and and stuff, you know, um, it's sort of hard to articulate exactly the influence of of my beliefs or understandings around consciousness, but it does affect my interaction with plants and so the so the non-human um, as well as the human.
0: Have either have many of your children said anything, don't know how many children you have. Have they said anything surprising? you think, goodness, that's a very adult thing to say for a child of that age.
1: Yes, yeah. so I've got three three children, and they've all said things which have um sort of stopped me, stopped me in my tracks, and I think if I didn't have an understanding through my experiences and my research. I might have just passed it off as childhood talk. But a couple of examples, my my oldest son, he's coming up 12 next year. But when he was a baby, he spoke really early. So he was quite articulate, but I used to take him on, on walks every day just to observe things, you know, bees, flowers, whatever took his interest or mine. Um, and one day on on these when we were out on a walk, and he was about two, we came across a dead bird, and he said to me, "You oh, know mummy, what's this?" And I said, well, it's a it's a bird. You, you know it's it's dead." And um he just sort of stood there and then looked at me and, and said, "Oh, yes, it's empty." And um I mean it's as a t- a two year old, yeah, you sort of think, why would they say that? But for me, I that was a moment where I thought this child understands something because I, I sort of thought, well, yeah, it is, you know, if, if you believe in, in a soul or a, what we call in te Māori, a wairua that inhabits the physical body, then, of course, when the, the the object is dead, then the wairua is gone, so it is empty. So he said there, I mean, another thing which I found really interesting when he was about the same son about three uh, my grandfather passed away and we were just finished the service and we hopped in the car and he said to me mummy are you sad and I said well yes yes I am and he said why and I said well you know granddad's died and I I miss him I'm just sad and he said oh well don't worry mummy he'll come back as another granddad and I thought oh well, isn't huh. that you know? That was a really Goodness. sort of interesting comment to make. My my middle son has said to me just recently, actually, he's he's nine now, but just a few months back, he said to me, "Um, sometimes Mum, my dream that I'm falling," and I said, oh, "Okay, I like flying, but it's really peaceful and it's and it's nice." Said, okay, that's that's nice, son. And and then he said, "Actually, you know." When I was a baby in your tummy, I think I fell from somewhere from the place. He said it was really, really nice there, really peaceful. But he said I remember falling, and that's when I became the baby in your tummy, and, and that blew me away as, <laughs> cool. as well. Um, I can
0: imagine.
1: Yeah, and I mean, he—it was only recently, and he's, he's nine. So I was sort of interested that at the age of nine he had this memory, which, you know, after reading books by like Ian Stevenson and that, you know, that often about reincarnation that seems to trail off after seven-ish, you know, in in Mm. general. So that he's still got this memory is really interesting to me. And then my daughter, my youngest, um, my mum passed away when I was six and a half and she, said to me, um, so I've got a photo of my mum, and she sort of said to me, oh, who, who's this? And this has been going on for years. She's nearly six, but it's been going on since she was about two. Who's this? And I said, oh, you know, that's your nan. And she, she died. and But she said to me when she was younger, um, I think once I was your mum and you were my, my daughter, and now you're the mum, and I'm the daughter. And and it was just really uh beautiful to have that, whether it's that's the way it is or not, I'm not sure. But for me it provided a really sort of full circle moment, you know. Yeah. And she said other things around that, like, I oh, remember when, when we lived, when you were a little girl, uh, we lived in in the greenhouse. And when I was a little girl, we did live in in a greenhouse um, with my mum. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, David, I've sort of gone yes. on about these, no, no these, that, Just that's absolutely really
0: fascinating. Our listeners are yeah. riveted by these stories. And I, one yeah. one of the things that struck me is that the you know the Gnostic view of incarnation is a fall into density, and so mm. the fall is a fall into separation, a fall into forgetfulness, and a fall into density, which is matter. And that's very yeah. that's that evocative of what what your son said about falling into the womb, as it were. So yes, interesting. Yeah. So yeah, interesting.
1: Yeah.
0: Anyway, we're coming towards the end, and so I wanted to ask you if you have a proverb or favourite quote that you live by, or which means a lot to you.
1: I, I do. Well, I have lots, as you can Quite probably a few, guess by yes. now.
0: <laughs> There's
1: many. I mean, one of the things I uh, like is this. This idea of learning by doing and knowing by experiencing. I, I think you know you can have knowledge and and learnt through books or or whatever, but I think to have that experiential component is is key um, to anything. I don't know where those proverbs or, or sayings come from, but I've come across them. Learn by doing and and know by experience. But a key thing that has stuck with me for quite a long time is I think it was Buddha said something along the lines of holding on to anger is like holding on to hot coals the only person getting burnt is you that's been something that really resonated with me in terms of how the mind influences our perception of the world you know you can be angry with someone but at the end of the day it's in you, <laughs> you know, it's internalized Indeed. in your mind and and uh you're the one that's getting burnt by it. So I've I guess that proper proper for me relates to all sorts of things, you know, how the, the importance of reflecting on what's going on in your own mind and how that shapes and colours your perception of the world. And I think that's really important from a research perspective as well, in terms of how we look at these phenomena like NDEs, like other, what we might cons- consider unusual, but I call them exceptional experiences of consciousness, uh, understanding how our reflection, our lens, colors, what we think of that.
0: No, very much. And, and you might even think of doing um, a survey and study of parents and children because and, there must be all sorts of other stories out there and, oh, yeah, and, yeah. You know, and I, I, was yes. So I was just thinking. I think it was Wellington who said that if you're angry, count ten before you speak. If very angry, twenty. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a nice one. Good advice. <laughs> well, exactly, um, and you could apply this sending emails as well. You know, don't press yes. the send <laughs> button uh, if you're going to inflame the situation. And finally, Natasha, uh, is there any advice you'd like to give your younger self from where you are now oh, gosh
1: um oh david that's that stumped me i i think <laughs> i think um my younger self if i could go back i'd um maybe just say don't worry so much about things yeah i think
0: that's just... very good advice and i think your <laughs> your it strikes me that you you've lived a very integral life um, and that you've really tuned into your purpose, why you're here and that you're on track from that and you've been on track since that experience at age 18 and the situation you're in with um, being able to integrate and bring forward indigenous knowledges and the work you're doing, um, which we're looking forward to hearing more about at the Beyond the Brain conference and i think that's remarkable natasha so thank you very much indeed for joining us
1: no you're welcome thank you